Chapter Forty Four of Agincourt, a Romance by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Ordering of the Battle. We must follow for a short space the steps of Sir John Grey, who hurried after the messenger to the quarters of the king, which lay at about half a mile's distance from his own. As I have shown, he intended to speak with the monarch upon the intelligence regarding the young knight which he had received that night, but an opportunity for doing so was not so easily found as he had expected. The moon was shining bright and unclouded, not a vapour was in the sky, and as he approached the guards which were stationed round Henry's temporary residence, he could hear the sound of voices and see distinctly a small party walking slowly up the road. One was half a step in advance of the rest, and there was something in the air and tread which told the knight at once that there was the king. Hurrying after, he soon overtook the group, and joined in their conversation in a low voice, but far more weighty thoughts than the fate of any individual now occupied all. Their speech was of the morrow's battle, their minds fixed upon that which was to decide the destiny of thrones and empires, which was to deal life and death to thousands, and Richard of Woodville seemed forgotten by all but Sir John Grey himself. The king, too, walked on before in silence, with his eyes bent upon the ground, and his look grave and thoughtful, and it was not till, passing out of the village, he came upon the brow of a small acclivity, from which the whole of the enemy's line of watchfires could be descried, that he paused or spoke. The moment that he stopped, the distinguished soldiers who followed him gathered round, and turning towards them with a countenance now all smiles, the monarch said, "'Somewhere near this spot must be the place. I marked it this afternoon. Ha, Sir John Grey, I hardly thought you would have time to come.' "'A little more in advance, sire,' replied Sir Thomas of Erpingham, answering the former part of the king's speech. "'If you take your stand here, the Frenchmen will have space to spread out their men.' beyond the edge of the two woods, but if you plant your van within a half-bow-shot of the edge of those trees, they must coop themselves up in the narrow space, where their numbers will be little good. "'You are right, renowned knight,' said the king, laying his hand familiarly upon Erpingham's shoulder. "'I did not mean just here. The standard shall be pitched where yon low tree rises, the vanward a hundred paces farther down, the rearward where we now stand.' "'Does your grace mark that meadow there upon the right?' asked Sir John Grey, close upon the edge of the wood. "'I do, good friend,' answered Henry, "'and will use it as I know you would have. "'But go down first and see how it is defended, "'for we must not expose our footmen to the French horse.' Sir John Grey and the Earl of Suffolk hurried on, while Henry examined the rest of the field, but they soon returned with information that the meadow was defended by a deep and broad ditch, impassable for heavy horses and henry replied well then we will secure it for ourselves by our good bowmen though we be so few we can spare two hundred archers to gall the frenchman's flank as they come up ay would to heaven cried one of the gentlemen present that all the brave men who are now idle in england could know that such a field as this lies before their king and they had time to join us ha what is that cried henry no by my life I would not have one man more. If we lose the day, which God forbid we should, we are too many already, and if we win this battle, as I trust in heaven we shall, 
I would not share the glory of the field with any more than needful. Come, my good lords and noble knights, let us go on and view the ground farther, and when all is decided, we will place guards and light fires to ensure that the enemy be not beforehand with us. Thus saying, he walked on, conversing principally with Sir Thomas of Erpingham upon the array of his men, while the other gentlemen followed, talking together, or listening to the consultation between the king and his old and experienced knight. As they went on, various broken sentences were thus overheard as, Ay, that copse of brushwood will guard our left right well, and the hedges and ditches on the right will secure us from the charge of men-at-arms. They're bowmen we need not fear, my liege. I have bethought me, my old friend, of a defence, too, for our archers in the front. We have all heard how, at Bannockburn, in the time of good King Edward, pitfalls were dug to break the charging horse. We have no time for that, but I think, if we should plant before our archers long stakes, pointed with iron, a little leaning forward towards the foe, the British bows would be secure against the chivalry of France. Or, if they were assailed and the enemy did break through, twould be in wild disorder and rash disarray, as was the case at Cressy. A marvellous good thought, my liege, but every battle has a change. Those who were once attacked become the attackers, and should such be our case, how will you clear the way for our own men from the stakes that were planted against the enemy? That must be provided against, Sir Thomas. Each man must pull up the stake near him. Nay, my liege, said Sir John Grey, joining in, let a hundred billmen be ranged with the second line of archers, and, at a word given, pass through and root up the stakes. Right, right, Sir John, answered the king. Then the fury of our charge, when charge we may, will not be checked by our own defences. Our van must be all archers, with the exception of the brown bills, and I think to give the command— I do beseech you, my lord the king, said the Duke of York, advancing from behind, to let me have that post, and lead the van of your battle. Words have been spoken, and rumours have been spread, which make me eager for a place of danger. You must not refuse me, royal prince. Nor will I, cousin, answered Henry. On your honour and good faith, I have as much reliance as on your skill and courage, which no man dares to doubt. Are you not a Plantagenet? The duke caught his hand and kissed it, and, if he had taken any share, as some suspected, in the conspiracy of Southampton, he expiated his fault on the succeeding day, by glorious actions and a hero's death. Now, said the king, after some further examination of the field, you understand our disposition, noble knights, and to you I entrust it to secure the ground during the night, and to make the arrangements for to-morrow. Cousin of York, you lead the van. I myself, with my young brother, Humphrey of Gloucester, will command the main battle. Oxford and Suffolk, you and the Lord Marshal, shall give us counsel. My uncle of Exeter shall lead our rearward line, and this good knight of Erpingham shall be our marshal of the field. Let all men in the centre fight on foot, and let the cavalry be ranged on either wing to improve the victory I hope to win. When all is ready, back to your beds and sleep. First praying God for good success to-morrow. Then, in the morning, early, feed your men, let them consume whatever meat is left, for if we gain the day they shall find plenty on before, and if we lose it, few, methinks, will want provisions. 
Thus saying, the king turned and walked back towards the village, and Sir John Grey, choosing that moment, advanced and addressed him in a low tone in regard to Richard of Woodville. Henry soon stopped him, however. "'We cannot speak on that to-night, my noble friend,' he said. "'It grieves me much, I own, to debar a gallant gentleman from sharing in a field like this. I know that it will grieve him more than death. But yet, nay, no more. We will not speak of this. Set watch upon him, but not too strict.' "'You understand me, and you who taught my infant hands first to draw a bow, "'shall fight by my side to-morrow. "'Now, good-night, I will tell you my belief. "'It is that this youth is guiltless. "'I do not often rashly judge men's characters, "'and I formed my estimate of his long, long ago. "'Farewell, and God shield us all to-morrow.' "'Sir John Grey hurried home, and found that, "'during his long absence, all in the house where he was quartered, except one or two of his own personal attendants, and the necessary guard, had retired to rest. Ere he sought his pillow also, however, he sat down and wrote some hurried lines, which he signed and sealed, and then, with a silent step, seeking the chamber where Richard of Woodville slept, with two or three yeomen across the door, he went in, and gazed for a moment at the young knight, as he lay on his little pallet, with his arm under his head, and a well-pleased smile upon his slumbering face. "'That is not the sleep of guilt,' said Sir John, in a low murmur to himself. "'There, that gives him my Mary, if I fall to-morrow.' And thus saying, he laid the paper he had written upon Woodville's bosom, and retired to his own chamber. End of chapter 44